I have to tell you, Nick, I got into a rabbit hole on your site today, Unsettling <laughs> Mormonism, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. That just grabbed me and pulled me in. It was fantastic. Hey, I mean, yeah. I always have mixed feelings because I'm like, good, that means I've done a good job. And also that entire project and stuff that I was like, I wish I just didn't. I, I wish this wasn't a thing. So I, you know, didn't have to slash couldn't do it. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about the project? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good way of grounding this piece that, you know, that we'll be mostly talking about in the uh, Modern Desert Markings, which like the whole, I have three, three sort of installation pieces um, and all of them collectively I think of as what I call Las Vegas piece, which is um, taking the name from the Walter De Maria uh, land art piece um, that I focused on as sort of the central hub of my research for those pieces. And that research starts um, during my graduate work. And so I am an ancestrally Mormon in Utah for the last like seven and a half generations, seven, eight generations. And um, before I started my work on Mormon settler colonialism, I was doing a lot of work about uh, healing my relationship to land, having been raised in a culture which separates humanity from land, from nature, that, you know, like, so that we define wilderness as a place where, what's the phrase, um, where man's marks on the land are temporary, where, where we are visitors passing through. Um, and then, you know, there's just the whole idea of man versus nature and the nature culture dichotomy and that, you know, we we don't consider the canals that run through a city a natural thing, but we consider the rivers they are, but it's the same waters anyway. Um, so I was doing a lot on healing that division by spending a lot of time like in these sort of intuitive relationships with rocks and thinking about deep time and climate collapse and the way, like, how climate collapse will affect stones and rocks and mountains versus the way it will affect us. And, you know, kind of uh, trying to find some safety and rest among the stones uh, in processing um, so much of our history. Uh, but living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in Tiwa land, where, you know, there's still a lot of strong Pueblo culture, in this place, um, I started to recognize that as a settler colonist, I need to be questioning how I developed this relationship with the land that I come from in the first place. Like, why is my unmelanated, blue-eyed body living in the high desert in the first place, when clearly that's not where I evolved, that's not where my skin evolved, that's not where my language evolved, that's, you know... This is not, this is my home and is not in a deeper generational sense, not my home. And so I started learning how my um, ancestors got here and as to why. So then I started unsettling Mormonism, which became just a bigger project of researching and sharing the education of the aspects of Mormon history and the settler colonial project that, of the U.S. that they were deeply a part of because most of that information was not things I learned in school or at church or in my home. And so I wanted to share it with others in my community who also weren't taught their own history. A edited version of it, yeah. I can say it was very intentionally and selectively edited. Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. Thank you.
Linda, how are you doing on this wonderful, cool day in Mesquite? Glad to be here, Steve. And we have a friend of ours, Nick B. Jacobson. I met Nick as part of the Modern Desert Markings project at the Barrick Museum, sponsored by Nevadans for Cultural Preservation. And I was with Nick on a very cold and windy day. <laughs> and we were at Walter, Walt, is it Walter D. Maria's? Yeah. Yep. He's called Las Vegas or something like that, I think, where he took a bulldozer and created a square in the desert. I think it was eight feet wide by one foot deep and made a perfect, supposedly it was perfect square. And we went out to find it. And I will say that we thought Nick got lost <laughs> because and it was weird because as soon as you got over the horizon a little bit with all the creosote, I, I don't think you could tell northeast, west, or south, or where anything oh. was. It all looked the yeah. same. Yeah, and, and, yeah, that was a easy to get lost environment. Oh uh, yes, it was, and then it was it was a fun little trip out there, but it was windy. And so <laughs> you you were out, and I think Paula, Lois, and I were out with the drone. Everybody else except the four or five of us went back to the cars and hid. <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> yes, they did. And I was so excited when we got, when, when it opened, then I got to see your presentation. You're part of the exhibit. And lo and behold, you did some video while you were out there. And yeah, it was windy. <laughs> Linda and I are very excited to have Nick today with us. Welcome, Nick. Glad to have you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm just struck with some of your writing. I'm looking at a statement that says, My body and my ancestors grew from stolen land, from the trauma of genocide and the trauma of justifying, ignoring, and gaslighting that truth. It is who my people are. Most of us don't think about that, but a lot of us share that same background, whether we're Mormon or Catholic. As my background was Catholic, I heard recently the Pope apologized to the people, indigenous people in Canada. Um, he did. Mm -hmm. Your words make us very thoughtful about all of our backgrounds. I feel the same way. Of course, I come from a life of privilege, not like Kennedy privilege, but I come from a life of <laughs> yeah. privilege that I was white. And I've, I've had certain advantages and I'm, I'm happy about that. I am where I'm at, except mm -hmm. I have I have that guilt. And I just I, you're, you, you, you take to an nth degree, you take it further. <laughs> and, and that's good because there's got to be somebody. But, but my yeah. question is, because I've often asked myself, how do I go on? So, Nick, how do you go on? Knowing that that's our history? Yeah. That's a really complicated question. It, it is a complicated question because I can't answer it for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I and I think that's what's hard is even though we do all share a similar history and there definitely is a, um, a you know, similar actions we can take. And it's also like very personal, like the. For example, one of the ways that settler colonialism has changed this landscape is that we think of it all as the United States. And prior to the that occupation and colonization, it was hundreds and hundreds of nations. And so in that similar way as, you know, folks like us that really appreciate land and ecology and that sort of stuff where people who are aware of that are more aware of the distinctions of all the different types of land that is occupied by the United States. And so just as each of our experiences with land is different, so too is what we do from here, given the history that created our relationship to this land. I guess one thing I want to start with is like that experience of guilt, which I think can be helpful and oftentimes is detrimental because like James Baldwin has talked about how guilt isn't necessarily helpful. For one thing, it starts us thinking about our like our own feelings again, which I think a big part of this, that shift of what I'm trying to do when I'm saying like we're all living in a land like ours here is seated in genocide, which as far as I'm aware is an everyday reality for nearly every indigenous person who's here but it's not for us. And so that is one of the things I try to do is try to communicate to other settlers things that we need to start being aware of 
that a lot of the other people who live in this land don't have the privilege of being ignorant of or, you know, ignoring. Um, and so I think that's kind of just that first step is starting to shift our perspective, which I, I hope we'll get to in this conversation, but I think specifically about this exhibition is further problematizing and questioning what I think a lot of us in um, land arts and ecology and, you know, just outdoorsy people take for granted is that conservation is an inherent good, but the history of land preservation and environmental conservation in the U.S. is also deeply tied to white supremacy and the preservation of the U.S. occupation of this land. I write about, because in all of my pieces, I kind of took this analyzing the Mormon fort that helped to found Las Vegas, and then Walter De Maria's art piece as well as all of the nuclear bomb craters that are just northwest of Las Vegas. Through that, analyzing those three things, that nuclear bomb landscape shares jurisdiction with a uh, wilderness preserve, National Wildlife Refuge. And so I talk about how the co-management of a wildlife refuge between the U.S. military and the um, Department of Interior isn't really a contradiction because, for one, the Department of Interior was established under the Department of War as another bureau to help with manifest destiny, and so they they were born they were born from each other, and so continuing on today, that nuclear field exists as a project to preserve the United States during the Cold War. And so it sharing its preservation of these like unique American landscapes, these indigenous landscapes under the U.S. government, they share a similar motive and a similar drive and a similar history, as I know is happening a lot in especially Nevada and some other parts of the Southwest. These national parks and monuments and refuges are beginning to be co-managed by indigenous nations and the federal government. But even that is as when Deb Holland got put in as the department secretary, she reminded us all that she comes, she is now taking the place, she's taking a position in which other people who have been in that position explicitly stated that their goal was to eliminate or assimilate all indigenous peoples. And so, yeah, that's that's one of the things I think as we move forward is like shifting our awareness of how we see land, how we see our place in it, how we see our relationship to it, which includes conservation and preservation and recognizing that there is a very specific history tied into all of those that is ongoing in many ways, like um, how the Indian Child Welfare Act is currently being potentially dismantled in the Supreme Court, which is a form of genocide, forcibly displacing children from one group of people into another. Basically, yeah, that's my where we go from here is like just start by shifting the kind of unthinking assumptions we have in our relationship to this land and our place in it and as well as like what our future looks like here. So your art at the Marjorie Barrick Museum reflecting these thoughts was was a video as well as a display, correct? Yeah, I, I have three pieces. One is a video that has some found found video overlaid on video I was making out in the desert like uh, Steve was talking about out near the Walter De Maria site as well as at the Desert National Wildlife Refuge. And then I have a flag that I made that is my interpretation of the first flag that was raised over the New Wu land, now known as Las Vegas, that one of my ancestors helped raise and that has these three ceramic platters hanging on it. And those platters are all made from clays that I harvested from New Wu land, not in the Las Vegas area, but where I grew up in the St. George area where the Shivwitz reservation is. Then I have an installation that's made of rocks from those three sites that I focused on or just outside of them because some of those places it is illegal to gather materials is another one of those things because that's a like long indigenous tradition and now indigenous peoples struggle to practice their medicine gathering and hunting and stuff in their own lands because of these preservation laws and that one also has a whole bunch of characters from the book of mormon and mormon history that you can like just buy online 
that also talk about the anti-indigeneity and settler colonial ideologies that are central to the Mormon theology. Thank you for explaining that. I, I saw your exhibit. I thought it was fascinating. Do you do photography as well? I was looking at a particular, I thought it was a poster, and it had a nuclear bomb in the background and cattle in the foreground. Was that uh, something you did, Nick? Are you talking about the images on the platters? Okay, that must be what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do a tiny bit of photography. Most of it is to feed my collage work. So I think that's like something to help describe how my work is unified, even though it's like these strange disparate things where I'm just kind of like gathering things and putting them all in a pile is like, that's the way I work. I think of most of my work as collage, but in a really expansive sense of that, like my installation works are collages. My videos are usually collages on the ceramic platters. I have three platters, each have a different collage on them that's fired on with like this special material. It's like a ceramic decal. I do a little bit of photography, but it's more to like bolster those other things. Most of the stuff I use, I try to find online because mm -hmm. in addition to focusing on collage, I focus on found object because I like to work with the sort of memory and history and energetic charge that uh, already existing objects have, whereas like quote-unquote raw materials, which in my mind I'm like, they are all existing objects. Like those, those are no more like raw than anything else we use. They're just less processed maybe. Yeah, I like to use found objects because I think they already carry a resonance that can really help me in my work that I don't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel. If I want to talk about something, I can just like use an existing object that already points to those histories and meanings. So your research is slow and very thoughtful. And it sounds like that when you do your art, you're focusing on what you want others to experience when they see that. Yeah, what I hope is that like I do try to make beautiful things even as most of my subject matter is you know really challenging and often you know that the, the histories I'm researching are really ugly I try to use beauty as an invitation for people to come you know get closer to them <laughs> mm -hmm. and then once you get a little closer you start to see the unsettling and uh, you know sometimes horrific elements that I'm inviting people to consider and I, yeah, I want to do that just because, you know, like anyone who follows the news at all right now, you know, no matter the news station you're watching, we all agree that things need to change. It's just what, what change is needed that we don't just agree, all agree on. Yeah, you know, between climate collapse and the epidemic of white supremacy in this country and then like the, you know, don't say gay and all the anti-trans and drag stuff coming around. Yeah. There's a lot we still need to work on as a culture and a group of people. And I think a lot of that starts with just shifting your perspective, which is, you know, art history ha or art has a long history of in asking people to do is just shift the way we see and understand and think. Right. I I'm curious how you came to be where you are today. A child, were you this thoughtful? Oh, how was there a major event that made you start thinking about all of this? What, and, and when did you get interested in your art, reflecting your feelings about your background and, and our shared heritage? I was raised in an abusive home. My bio dad uh, was physically, sexually, emotionally, financially abusive. That is where now I trace back some of these understandings because to me as a a white person who was, you know, raised in a fairly homogenous culture. Uh, the place that I have the most experience with the patriarchal leaders of the group that I'm in using that power imbalance they carry um, abusively and violently, that's how I'm familiar with that experience. And through that visceral experience, I think it's become more accessible for me to understand more of those cultural abuses that are, you know, normalized because that's one of the things of abuse is so often it is normalized and, you know, people who 
who end up in an abusive relationships often end up going back into those abusive relationships because it it just becomes a pattern that is unfortunately feels safer and more familiar than the hard work of changing that dynamic and so i think because of that understanding i i maybe developed a you know a sensitivity to like paying attention to those things and then this more like research based understanding started uh with my the, the person i married we you know they they were raised to be a woman and they started telling me about like how uncomfortable it is to even walk alone and how often they get like you know threatened and yelled at from cars and just other people on the street and one of my favorite activities is just wandering around mindlessly so that i can get lost so that i discover new things and you know like i love doing that and so it was just such a surprise to me and i was like you can't even walk by yourself comfortably and so from there like that sort of understanding of like oh the experiences i've had are not universal and not everyone is walking around with the same kind of like somewhat safety and comfort i was presenting as you know a straight white man yeah it just sort of like kept growing from there and i think one of the important parts that uh, like made me really start focusing on my own history is like you know i kept learning more about police brutality and uh the you know settler colonialism and patriarchy as i started to learn more about those things is when i started to be like oh there's a lot of this going on and like my experiences are not what other people experienced and so what is my work in this what do what do i as where i come from you know my history as a a person raised to be mormon as a utahn as a us american as a person who grew up in an abusive home what's my responsibility in that and that's when i started to get to like my personal history i started to just go like well where do i come from and what am i directly ancestrally responsible for in the same way that we you know kind of it's unthought that we get to inherit what our parents hand down to us when it's land or wealth or property or a couch but we don't think the same way about the responsibilities for the histories that created us you know we i i i do this a lot so i've had these discussions in many comment sections that people are like oh well i'm just responsible for everything my great great grandparents did and it's like well if they were handing down property you wouldn't be questioning it would you like yeah these are our responsibilities that we need to tend to and i think that shift in like a lot of you know especially euro descendant settlers it's hard for us to find out like what is our work in social justice and that for me was like it's it's focusing on myself like learning where this stuff is in my body in my family in my culture in my history not so much you know changing a portrait of Emmett Till in an open casket Nick I I just want to say I'm so sorry to hear that you endured an abuse as a child that had to be terribly difficult and you have turned that into good into thinking about others and and sharing what has happened to the indigenous people so I thank you for for doing that Yeah I'm grateful I had the support to be able to transmute that pain into this work Yeah, just a, a comment you made earlier about um, the tribes co-managing. I think of Equime is a success in that vein, and particularly because of Deb Holland, that it, yeah. it, it is going to be co-managed. That's awesome. And, of course, like anything else, I'm a skeptic. It remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, but, the none, but actions, nonetheless, we're, yes. But nonetheless, right now we're celebrating of Equimay. Good. Yeah, that's like one of the things I was researching um, was the that the Air Force was planning to take even more land out of the Desert National Wildlife Refuge, and how much of the activism and organizing from like the Nuwu organization on that that like. I think three tribes like 
uh, a list, like send out, you know, um, statements from their from their governments, and we're doing a lot of very bold organizing. And this is one of the reasons that I, from thinking about ecology, started thinking about settler colonialism, is that in general, indigenous peoples are the most effective at caretaking their ecologies. And, you know, that comes from a lot of things. Like like I was saying before, English didn't evolve in this land. Nuwu language did. And so its language is built around the environment that it came from. And so, like, even just their language itself holds these knowledges of how to best care for this land through thousands of years of generational knowledge. A statistic that a recent UN study put out is that 80% of the planet's remaining biodiversity is held on about 20 to 25% of the land, which is all managed by indigenous people who represent only about 5% of the human population. And similarly, Nuwu believe that if, or at least I've read that they believe that if the desert bighorn sheep, they call them mountain sheep, and have a, you know, a, a new word for them, if they all die, so too will their people, because they have stories about how their lives are intertwined and how the mountain sheep like gave its life to create new people. And so I think there's just in that experience of actually being from a place for like thousands of years and like hundreds of generations, mm -hmm. that creates a different kind of relationship and care with a land that we settlers as a group, not necessarily individuals, but as a group, we've never developed. Um, because when things got hard for so many of our ancestors in Europe, we left. So that, yeah, that that's one of the reasons it's so important to me to do that work is I also see it as one of the best climate solutions we can do, which is uh, put the stewardship of the lands back in the hands of the peoples who evolved with them. So, Nick, you're a writer as well as a an artist. Yeah, yeah. So when you were young, did you have this poll, um, do, do I want to be a poet, a writer, or do I want to be a visual artist? Uh, <laughs> or did you just decide you w wanted to do it all? And, and <laughs> um, when did you decide you were an artist? Yay. I love this question because I feel like I'm one of the art. I, I don't have that story of like, I was four years old and I already knew I was going to be an artist. Um, because I'm not really a painter or a photographer or necessarily a sculptor. And so like so much as I look back now, so much of like me playing in the dirt and digging channels and then running the hose through it so I could like build a moat and a hill and then like the army guys and the cars would fight and blah blah yeah like I was like oh I was a land artist I just you know <laughs> that was art at the time and so just on a small I, I, scale yes <laughs> yeah. I, I had a, a Tonka bulldozer not, <laughs> not the full size yeah. thing <laughs> um, you were so, yeah. you were you were but a grant away <laughs> still still just a grant away um, yeah and so that like like i like to tell people like friends that are like oh i'm not an artist and i'm like guess what the art supply stores i don't buy any of that stuff for my work i i don't use anything at an art supply store for my art just because you don't draw or paint doesn't mean you're not an artist and the writing element actually was pulling teeth i hated writing i was one of those artists so it's like i just barely spent all this time putting some communication into a nonverbal form and then you're like okay now tell me what it means in words i'm like no that's not fair <laughs> i developed skills in another form of communication and if you're not going to try to understand that but as so many things in my life i got a little older and humble and was like yeah we have lost a lot of our visual communication skills outside of advertising, um, which so often works unconsciously, not consciously, the way I think we ask art to often work for us. And then because I started focusing on like these really heavy and serious things, it felt irresponsible to abstract genocide, you know? Like, that feels like something that's like, I can put them in art, and I want to be sure that if you want to know more, there is like some really specific direct communication that is accessible for everyone so yeah when i was a kid 
I think, you know, I, I didn't ever want to be an artist. My first thing that I remember I wanted to be was a lawyer. I was going to go to Harvard, but all I really understood say it ain't, lawyers, say it ain't so. <laughs> <laughs> all I really understood about lawyers is that they made good money and got to talk in front of people. And like, I was already kind of, you know, a teacher's pet and knew I wanted, you know, I knew we were poor. So I knew I wanted to like help take care of my mom. So I was like, Oh, I'll be a lawyer. And then I found out no one likes lawyers and my middle child people please herself was like, Oh no, never mind. <laughs> Gotta find something else. Okay. You're making me laugh too hard now. <laughs> yeah. So no, I had no idea what I was doing and it took me till my, when did I finally get a BFA? I was 28. So yeah, my process has been slow the whole time. <laughs> And your BFA is in ceramics and sculpture? Uh, that's what it says on paper, but uh -huh. I, the school I went to was almost exclusively pottery. So okay. Yeah, I really got a degree in pottery, but yes, the paper says ceramics and sculpture. And you have a Master of Fine Arts in Art and Ecology from the yeah. University of New Mexico. I, I'm saying this because you are humble. You received many awards and scholarships, including Omaha Arts and Entertainment's Best Emerging Artist, Best New Media Artist, recognized as one of Omaha's five artists to watch, and your works have been exhibited and collected throughout the United States. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a lot of gratitude that I that what I do gets recognized and supported and you know, it always feels good when people are like, Yeah, I see what you're doing and I also agree that it's important and that, you know, sort of put it on a platform where more people can find it. Yeah, I think that's a little more elevating than if I'd paint a picture of a landscape. And somebody says, that's pretty. <laughs> he's, he's teasing me because I just did that. <laughs> no, okay. You're, you're, Linda, you're, I, I wasn't because you're a portrait painter. You are. Uh, Nick, she is an amazing portrait painter. Expressions are her specialty. I, I will pay you later, Steve. No, but what, what I was getting at was that someone paints a picture for it to be pretty. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, and I think where Nick gets the extra boost here is, okay, I like your picture, but I also understand that it's made me think. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is that a little bit better to explain your, you know, how you feel, how you feel that someone is, um, is recognizing you? Yeah. Yeah. That's the way I feel is that like one, yes, I have developed skills within visual communication and that what I'm communicating people feel a resonance that like yeah they want to see more and learn more and yeah there's just something that catches curiosity that stays with you which i think is the most important thing you can do in art like i've had mentors be like you know if if someone hates your work that can be better than if they just think it's pretty because like if they hate it it's gonna stay with them if they're just like, oh, that's nice, they might forget it by the time they've walked away. And so, yeah, for me, like lasting impact and hopefully that that impact moves toward change is my art goal. That's a really good point. And it seems like you have a carry a tremendous burden. What what do you do to relax, Nick? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I have accepted a lot of responsibility and that so I run an Instagram page. This isn't how I relax, but this is how I try to spread the burden. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, part of the education is also like, hey, this is a lot. A lot of people participated in the 500 years of creating these problems. I would love some support with it. Um, yeah, which I also think is the call that indigenous and black people and, you know, queers have been asking for for decades is like, hey, we'd love some support. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to relax... I think, you know, I'd, I'd imagine this is shared among most of the artists and you all is I like to be outside. I love the just that. I don't know that like this. I've spent much less time trying to put into words. Yeah, just being outside among trees and animals, like just that feeling of spring happening right now. Sure. Like, there's just something that happens in our bodies that I think is just 
part of us being animals that as the sun gets warmer, as the trees start to leaf, as like green starts coming up out of the dirt, it just does something in our bodies that is calming. Like I, I know there is like scientific research on that too, that, you know, just walking in the woods can improve your mental health. Yes. And for me, I think it's that like, you know, I spend so much of my time thinking about these things and I know they are very serious issues that I believe are extinction level threats. But at the same time, I can walk outside and the birds are still chirping. Like, I don't think they're not suffering because like birds are experiencing mass die off. And so like a lot of them are probably losing family and friends. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, they just keep going. They keep living their lives. They keep doing what they need to do. And that like is a good reset for me. It's, it, it's grounding. I just want to let you know, I feel so much warmth today from you through just talking to you. And I love your your laugh. So here I am giving you a virtual hug through the microphone. It's it's just so good to talk to you. Thank you, Linda. It is really heavy, but I think there's there's like so much joy for me to like find in this because which I, I remember we talked a little bit about this, Steve, like when we were in the cars, but like I'm trans non-binary. And so a lot of the messaging I received in my life, like is internally harmful. It goes against like myself. And so being able to understand how those communications got in there, like, and you know, for me, like this even includes like the settler colonial ideologies and white supremacy, that understanding those things helps me see that these like feelings that are unresolved because the external reality that I was given and my internal reality don't match, which, you know, creates a lot of tension and frustration. So even it is it is really painful to exhume these histories, it also is lightening. Like it, it is a heavy weight to carry and it lightens my weight by learning them because I'm like, oh these feelings I've been having, there are reasons that I felt that this was wrong and that it doesn't fit with my body, you know? So, like, it, it alleviates a lot of that confusion and frustration of my internal reality not matching my external reality. Understand. I watched your video about To Be a Rock. Oh, cool. And and that gets me to thinking, because I have this whole thing about time. I don't believe there is any such thing as time. Um, time is something that humans made up. Okay. So that rock, it doesn't experience time. But I, I guess maybe in its its own of course, it doesn't think or anything. But it, um, I, I don't know. I just had to get that in. I, I, I watched that and I thought that was interesting. And of course, you didn't make it for me, but I took it. It got me into that whole time thing. Yeah, that is one of the reasons that those videos are sped up. Like, they happen at, like, ten times the frame rate of our experience of moments. Because that's what I was trying to point to is, like, there's a... I can't remember who the, the artist is, but there's a, um, like, stop-motion movie called... I think it's just called, like, Das Rock. And it's these two rocks sitting up on a hill watching, like, an entire civilization rise and fall within a matter of moments and like the sky is kind of always gray because like it's day and night so fast Yeah. that yeah anyway so I that that was kind of where I was thinking about like as stones experiencing time which does play in this like both and because I'm talking to them in our time scale at a pace of language and, and in a language that they may or may not understand on some level because I do believe there is, like, sentience in all life. Because, you know, our sentience grew out of inorganic matter. And so, like, why why would the seed of it not still be in those things? So, yeah, that's, I think that, and that, that sense of time is one of the reasons I was like, I want to be a rock so that these, like, what ifs, what's going to happen moments just move past. And I can just, like, 
be in the apocalypse or we didn't end up in the apocalypse, but I don't have to sit there in the like, oh, what's going to happen? Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, that'll set me off on an all-night quest on Google <laughs> and, and things I, <laughs> I love. Thoughts about water in the West? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> you don't have to go into that, but it, it's certainly one of the things that I think about a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I do too, because, like, for example, settler colonialism, which is where I always come back to, but the near beaver extinction altered the hydrology of the West before any major settlement had happened. And so the settler colonial imagination of the West as this, um, I mean, it, it, it was a desert before, but as a dry desert um, with very few wetlands is not accurate pre-colonization, but only the trappers and indigenous people experienced what this land was like before the near extinction of the beaver. And then on top of that, once Mormons got out there, like, Mormons are often praised when they are acknowledged as like a principal settler colonist group of the West with managing all the water out here um, because like they moved out as a group. So they were able to manage these large projects that people who moved out as families didn't have the same sort of like unity to pull off. And so Mormons did some major irrigation uh, changes. But through that, and I know Utah more than most surrounding areas, but like Severe Lake was dried out before 1900. Salt Lake is on its way to becoming a toxic dust bowl. Utah Lake has been poisoned for decades. They keep building what they call reservoirs, even though like the rivers and mountains from which those reservoirs are supposed to fill are in now like a mega drought which is caused by our, you know, fossil fuel usage. And so it's just these round and round we go. It feels a little, I don't, th these are the parts, like, Linda, you were talking about, how do I, how do I relax? These are, like, my opposite relaxes. These are my, like, <laughs> myself on them is when I'm like, well, you know, we do have that phrase in our mostly Christian Euro culture, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it, kind of seems like what we've done unto others the land is maybe going to do to us a good point really good point. yeah yeah H have you ever read um cadillac desert yeah <sighs> okay that's uh, one of my favorite books <laughs> that one, and, and that's yeah, a, that one messed me up and and that's a and that's a human being who died way too young he was really good oh i didn't realize that the author yeah yeah he did like he did like one more book and and it was a little bit different and everything, but that that was really good. Of course, it just it made me be even more cynical about government. But okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. If you could go back in the art world. Where would you go and why? Yeah, I think that, like, mid-60s, early 70s would be the period I'd be most interested in seeing what's happening. These questions I am always hesitant about, like, the going in the past, because, like, if I were in a different body, it might be super unsafe for me to go very far back. Or if I, you know, dressed and presented the way I like to now, it might be pretty dangerous for me. But that said, there, there, I think, like, there you go. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think we've had two females answer this question. They wouldn't want to go back because yeah. they, they said there was no opportunities for me then. Yeah. So why would I want to go there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think that's why, like, the 60s, 70s is the most interesting to me, is it seems to be the period when at least a handful of women were getting some features. And I think even though, like, yes, I believe that land arts is filled with colonial ideologies, and it was a period when a lot of that stuff was starting to be questioned, of, like, the commercialization of art, of this, like, object permanence of art, of, like, you know, the, the museum as graveyard of like, what, why do we make things so that they can be collected in perpetuity 
like what what is the purpose of making art i feel like and especially because again like i was saying i'm not really a painter or a traditional sculptor and so like going back too far in art history no one would no one would call my art art and so the 60s 70s is about like the first time that that really started to blow up another for example is the first time in my art history classes that i was like wait whoa that's awesome was um Yves Klein's uh, Empty Gallery, because it was like the first piece of conceptual art in art history, or at least in my art history class, it was the first one that I was like, whoa, this person just believes that like existence is art, and so presents an empty gallery to try to like get people to like, what is art? I was like, whoa, this is so cool. And then I learned about, like, Mark Dion, and he was like, oh, I dredged the Venetian River and put a bunch of stuff in cabinets. And I was like, what? You just found stuff and put it on display? Okay, I'm interested in this. Let's keep talking. (laughs) Does your art totally support you financially now, or do you have to have a day job? He's already laughing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't sell a whole lot. It it probably is something I could focus on more, but that that has always been a challenge for me. Earning money and making art aren't always synonymous, and sometimes they interrupt each other, because running a business is a very different side of my brain than the way I think in art making. And so that's always been a struggle for me, is that balance of like, okay, like as a potter, I went through that whole world and I was like, hey, I'm going to be a potter. I'm going to have that romantic dream. I'm going to have a rustic studio in my backyard and I'm going to sip coffee till 10 a.m. and blah, blah. But then as I got deeper and deeper into that world, I started to see like, oh, this person's kind of still making the same pot that they got famous for 15 years ago. Oh, yes. So now this like experience of exploring and creating and challenging yourself has been limited to a product that people recognize and collect because it's the famous thing of yours. Like, because that's that's you now. And so that's the one they want to collect, not necessarily your new experiments that aren't fully figured out yet. And so that got me like, oh, I don't know that I want to do it because that's going to turn this back into like a job which is one of the reasons art was so attractive to me. So it's like, it's not this production level monotony. That's So basically at some point I was like, I think I'm just going to keep a job. I'm going to let my art be what it needs to be. I'll probably have to support it a lot. But between challenging societal norms and making things that aren't a singular object both were just like big challenges for me to earning money not to mention that i grew up in poverty and so like money mindedness was not given to me in my home and you know as i assume we're all familiar that's not really something schools teach so there's also just like yeah i never really learned how to run a business so i'm like i'd rather just work for someone else and be pretty poor and be able to make art that isn't restricted by, you know, will this sell? Is this palatable enough that I will get a grant? Like, is it challenging enough to get a grant, but not so challenging that it scares away the board kind of stuff? Sure. So do you have an occupation where you can think about your art when you're working? Or do you have that where you can think about your art when you're working or do you have to totally focus on your job when you're there yeah so right now since since graduating grad school i've been working for a potter here in albuquerque who makes mostly we make urns for like babies and pets and she has an online store and so yeah for the most part that job allows me my mind to be wandering and be in conversation with my boss who we've been working together for like over three years now so we're pretty close and it's a small studio so yeah I, I have plenty of time to like be in rich conversations like this with her as well as like be able to be thinking on my own but that now the pandemic has ended and some of the like you know i'm i'm a contractor there so my taxes just like blossomed 50 percent more this year and so this year i was like oh i can't afford to do this anymore so i just got hired at a community college um cnm here in albuquerque so i start teaching this summer 
which will probably shift some of my energy, but I spend so much time educating on my Instagram page that I think that's probably what will start to taper off so that I, I consider that one of my like art forms, but I will, yeah, I will probably just taper down on that and still be doing like the art making of like more visual art. Congratulations on your hiring as an educator. Will this be a first experience for you? For educate? Okay. Besides being a student teacher, this is Mm. my first, like, quote-unquote, real job. (laughs) My first post-grad school. It's the first job that I have to have an MFA for. Um, Your students are going to be so lucky to get you. I'm really excited. I love being in the class. Like, as you may hear, I, too, like to talk. (laughs) So, yeah. And I just love, I love teaching art because you get to teach everything. In art, like that's what's so exciting about it to me. And I, I think our friend Hickman, she really enjoys her classes and yes. her students. Yeah. And I can see you being the same way. Yeah, I acknowledge it's probably going to take a lot of my, like, a lot of the time that I donate to my art now will probably be donated to my students now. Um, but that's okay because I also think teaching isn't like that's one of my things when I, you know, talk to my friends that I'm like, oh, I'm not an artist. I'm like. Did you dress yourself this morning? Did you make decisions about your day? Are you creative problem solving the things that come up in your life? Those are all art forms. Those are all art skills. So, yeah, that's to me, I really like teaching because it's like, yeah, these are all skills that you will use in the rest of your life, whether you decide you're going to keep making art or not. And guess what? All of you are artists. (laughs) You all creative problem solve. I love that. I love the words you're using, creative problem solving. I always ask our guests if they feel they do a lot of problem solving in art. Coming from a math background here. That's our math teacher. (laughs) I loved my first year I taught. I thought, oh my gosh, I could do this without pay. I think you're going to just love it. And and I'm so happy for you. Yeah, but don't donate your pay. Right. Probably want to keep a little bit of it. Nick, what has inspired you this past week? Um, well, my mom died on the third. Today is her birthday, um, and I'm going to her funeral this weekend, and so that has been an inspiration to me because, um, as we've been talking about, my whole family, not not all of them anymore, but the, the majority of my family is practicing Mormon, and so this death brings out, like, one of the central differences we have is, you know, what happens after we die, and because of childhood trauma and me leaving the path that my mom set for me. Um, it's taken some years for us to develop a respectful relationship as adults, as you know, my teen angst had to simmer down and her, she had to expand what was acceptable for her children. And so, yeah, her passing has just been this really inspirational, but also obviously really hard. Uh, experience for me of kind of letting go and leaning into like, you know, mutually leaning into I don't know with her because Mormonism has some fairly strict teachings on how you get to be with your family after you die, which I, you know, obviously don't share. And I believe like we rejoin our families more in the sense of my body decays and all of those all the electricity and energy and material that I was made of goes back into that from which it came. And that's how I go back to being with my family in a much more broad sense than the people who gave birth to me and I grew up in the same house as. And so for me, I'm like, I can feel my mom with me now all the time because much of her energy was created in my body. So also sitting with the like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe she did go to the heaven that she's always planned on going and you know yeah so that's been my inspiration is just like letting go letting go of her and letting go of it like yeah i really don't know what happens after we die nick i'm so sorry for your loss yeah it's it's hard 
she was, you know, still in, like, not quite 70, so she's a little young, but that's that's, something that everybody who's born gets to do, so it's an important part of living. Yes, it is. Do y'all want to share any of your inspirations? Do you have quick ones before we go? Oh, so you're going to ask us what's inspired (laughs) us this week? Yeah. He's turning it around again. I I had that happen to me once before. (laughs) Uh, My my inspiring thing this week is I've been working with, uh, I've been volunteering with a group of folks. um, And if you've, you've been in Las Vegas, Little Red Rock. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's private land owned by Howard Hughes. And oh. um, so the, the tribe there told them, um, you know, you can continue to build houses, which I don't even want to talk about that. The mm-hmm. desert tortoise sewer, I mean, that's not inspiring yeah. at all. But um, th- just that there's really good people who are up there giving their time to erase the graffiti that's been for mm. you know a couple generations um, yeah. lathered on these rocks uh, over top of uh, cultural sites, petroglyphs, yeah. and it's been inspirational to me to work with these people. and And there are there are families, there's couples who work. You know, we're not all old people doing this, and and they're <laughs> up there. They're up there giving their weekend um, the, to to turn these around. You know, and I can just, I, I can feel the spirits when, when I go up there and work. So that's been inspirational to me. Nick, thank you for asking. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And Steve, you and Lois and your group have inspired me as well this week. And with what you've been doing, I've been following you on Facebook from the comfort of my home. Um, <laughs> but I know it's been tough work. It's been in the heat. You've been wearing those heavy um, mask goggles um, you've spilled what do you call it elephant snot elephant snot um, spilled some mm. of that on your back and even though they doused you with water you had a scab there and you came back with a bad sunburn you continually inspire me Steve thank you Linda I had a great time I've really been looking forward to this Nick um, you were an intriguing person from the time we we rode on that freezing, that butt freezing day, up trying yeah. to find a square. <laughs> yeah. That there's yeah, some people honestly, that swear we found it. Yeah, uh, I don't think we did, but we were in the general. <laughs> we were in the general vicinity. But yeah, that's inspiring. That somebody did that. And that land, it's been 50 years, has yeah. has taken it back over. Yeah. Nick, yeah. thanks thanks so much for being on today. I hope when you uh, come through Mesquite sometime, you contact Steve and me, and I can give you a real hug, not a virtual hug. Mm-hmm. I, I really, you. really appreciate talking to you and enjoyed your warmth today. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, thank you, too. I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks for making this space, y'all. So, yeah, and you've been on other podcasts, so you're an old hand at this. So (laughs) I hope hope you're saying that, ah, they were okay. (laughs) No, no, I really enjoy it. And I've been on, like, you know, like, all the different ones I've been on have a different focus. And so, like, honestly, I haven't gotten to do very many that are art-focused. So I'm always excited when it's not, like, Let's just talk about settler colonialism. Yeah, I know. And I feel too much about that. That's where all my questions were. Oh, no. I mean, it's a central part of my work. But I think here we get to, like, wrap it into, like, you know, like, because it's an art, we get to wrap it into, like, why is this important to me beyond a change? Like, that it is emotional, spiritual, historical. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. 
questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Everybody's gotta learn sometime.